excited to be with everyone today. Big shout out to all the moms who come through on Mother's Day. We love you. We got new moms, spiritual moms, grandmoms, and mom moms. <laughs> Good to see all of you today. Uh, we are in our series of Deuteronomy right now. And we are winding down. We're getting towards the end. We have two more weeks left in Deuteronomy. And it, it's, it has been such a great experience to read through this book and see how much of the Bible that most people know, which is the New Testament, how much has come from that, how much relies on books like Deuteronomy and how we get impacted by learning about who God is about his character, and about how that doesn't change. And so today, uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Most of the chapter we'll be reading through today. And we'll talk about uh, how Israel has gone from oppression to abundance. Oppression to abundance. And it's really the story of Israel that is recounted in this chapter in a very cool way that we'll get to look in. This chapter concludes two things in the book of Deuteronomy. It includes a section, a sermon, that Moses started in chapter 12 about worshiping God and how we worship Him uh, by obeying Him through the law. It also finishes Moses' expo- uh, exposition on the Ten Commandments and how Israel is supposed to live that out. And so uh, this week, the ending of Moses' exposition on the law of do not covet. Uh, so we have this kind of double conclusion that's happening And how that happens is through the story of Israel, how Moses ends the sermon. And so let's jump in. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1. And we're going to read through different sections throughout the sermon today. So we're going to start off with verses 1 to 4. And you can read with me along on the screen. Moses says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it, You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So just going to kind of explain what is happening here as we go through this passage. Israel is about to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. That's what it means. Moses is preaching through the law one last time before they enter into the promised land. And... They are going to go from mainly a nomadic, cattle-herding community to a land-owning, agrarian uh, society. And that has certain implications for them. But God commands them when they do that, when they enter into the promised land and they start planting their vineyards and uh, they start reaping of the harvest of the fruit and the wheat and all the things that agrarian societies do. He says, take that first fruit, the first produce, the first harvest that you have. I want you to bring of that harvest Bring it to the priest. And you're going to make two declarations. And the first declaration is just acknowledging uh, what we're doing right now. It's, I declare today to the Lord your God that 
I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So there, the first declaration is they're saying God has kept his end of the bargain. He swore this land to us. We are here. And I'm bringing this offering as a dedication, as a sacrifice, as worship to God. And because of what he has done. And this was called the first fruits, which is literally the first of their produce, the first fruit that they got uh, from their land. They brought it to God. This is the first of two declarations, though. They do a second declaration. The second declaration uh, gives a better understanding of what's happening. And it starts off like this in verse five. It says, and you shall make a response before the Lord your God. So the second thing that they say And it starts off, a wandering Aramean was my father. And so this whole second declaration that we're about to read, that is kind of the crux of what's happening here in this passage, is that an explanation of why are they bringing these first fruits? Why are they doing this? Why are they coming with this basket? Why are they giving God these first fruits? Why are they worshiping him in this way? Why are they making these declarations in the first place? And the reason is God is teaching them to remember who he is. And how he does that is through storytelling. We've talked about this time and time again. Remembering where God has taken you from. This is something that we see all throughout Deuteronomy and something that we see all throughout scriptures. That we are to be a people who remember God and remember what he's done for us. Remember who he is. We talked last week about the atonement and how that is something very powerful That we can remember that Jesus has done for us. Something that can bring us to worship every single day. So this story starts off with a wandering Aramean was my father. And so they're talking about Jacob. Um, You know, in the Old Testament, we hear this declaration a lot. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, And so Jacob, he wandered a lot for most of his life. And he married two women that were Aramean. And so he's called the wandering Aramean here. And the two women that he married were Rachel and Leah. But what we're about to hear is the story that starts with Jacob. Because, you know, Abraham is kind of the father of Israel. uh, And he gets a promise from God that he's going to be the father of many nations. Then he has one child, a legitimate child, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. But we really start to see that promise of God that he gave to Abraham start to fulfill in Jacob because Jacob has a lot of kids, a lot of kids, uh, 12 kids, 12 boys to be exact. Um, so it's a lot of them. And what happens is we're going to read kind of the story of Israel. And so we're going to continue with scripture after verse five, starting in the middle of verse five. And it says, and he, Jacob, went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw, saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. So remember, this is something that every Israelite, as they're going to bring their offering, their first fruits to God, they're recounting this story, and they're telling the story of their, of their nation, of their people. Jacob, he, there is a drought in the land that he's in, and so he goes to Egypt because one of his sons, Joseph, had been sold into slavery of Egypt. God used him 
to be the second in command in Egypt and save that entire nation from the seven-year drought that was hitting everybody else. And so all the people from different lands were going to Egypt to receive food. So Jacob goes with his entire family. At this point, it's about 70 people. When you have that many kids, you start multiplying really quickly. And so when he gets there, they decide we are going to live here with Egypt. And so for 400 years, they lived there. And God greatly blessed the people of Israel. They went from that measly 70-person crowd to 1 million people in the land of Egypt. Just imagine, you keep on having kids like Jacob. It doesn't take that long to get to one mil. So Egypt, when this happens, they get really afraid. Because they're thinking, this is our country, yet there are people in this land that are way more numerous than us. And they forget how God used Israel to bless their land and bless their people. And so what do they do? Egypt, out of their fear... They oppress, enslave, humiliate, and mistreat Israel. They turn them into slaves to do all their hard labor. But what does Israel do at this point? It says that Israel cried out to God. They did not cry out to Pharaoh. They did not look within themselves for self-discovery and willpower. They instead cried out to God. And so what happens when they cry out to God as a people? That's the second part of this story that they recount, starting in verse 8. This is the response after they cry out to God about their oppression. It says, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit to the, of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So God answers the cry of Israel. And he answers it in two ways. The first way that he answers it is he brings judgment on Egypt. He brings judgment on them for how they treated Israel. God is constantly seen as the one who is the avenger of the poor in the scriptures. And he will always have justice against people who oppress the marginalized. And so we see Egypt receives judgment. They receive the plagues. But the second way that God answers their cry is abundance for Israel. As they enter into the land that is constantly called the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I I honestly don't understand that. Like, if I'm going to go into a land, I don't think of like, man, I can't wait to eat all the honey and the milk. (laughs) But that for them was the thing, milk and honey. But it signified the abundance of God. Like, there is so much produce. There is so much that these things that are rare will be flowing among you guys. So after God brings them out of oppression and into abundance of his promise, what is the first thing that Israel has to do? They honor God by giving him the first of their produce. What this is, is really, it's a sign of respect, a sign of being humble, of humility, and a sign of thankfulness towards God. 
It's a clear sign of this, showing where their abundance has come from. See, when they go into this land and they get their abundance, they start to become wealthy, they start to have a lot more. They're going from people who were enslaved to people who were oppressed to works for other people for a living to now having their own land, their own abundance. They bring that to God and that says, God, we are first and foremost saying, thank you. This is your doing. This is not my doing. This is, this is not my toil. This is not my hand. This is your doing. And so if they kept it for themselves and enjoyed it, usually the logic is, well, I work for this. This is mine. I can do what I want. But in bringing it to God, first and foremost, prioritizing that, they're saying, this is your doing, God. Thank you for everything that you have given us. It's a clear sign of showing where their abundance has come from. But praising God for what he has done in your life is not just about remembering him and prioritizing a first fruits. Moses has more things for them to do. We're going to read from verse 11 to 15 here. Moses says, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe which I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel, and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's a few ways to celebrate abundance and praise God when we have it. Here are a few ways. First thing, give to God, right? He says, first, your priority is giving your first fruits. This is how you celebrate what God has given you. The second thing is you have to throw a party. You have to throw a party. See, people that think God is boring have never read the Bible. God puts in laws parties throughout the year that the people have to throw and tells them, have a good time. Yes, thank you. So when you read about the third year tithe, we talked about this maybe a month and a half ago, that in the third year of the tithe, they were supposed to bring all the tithes, and from their tithes, they were supposed to take some and have a party and have a great time. And the third thing, how you celebrate the abundance and praise God and what He has given you, is you feed the needy. Share what you have with the sojourner or the immigrant, the fatherless and the widow. The people who in that society had nothing. They were not landowners, so therefore they could not have any produce and they could not share in the abundance that all of the children of Israel were sharing in. 
And so they were supposed to give to God, they were supposed to throw a party, and they were supposed to feed the needy. Now what this says for us is I think there are certain principles that we can take from this and learn today. There are certain things that God has given us in the Old Testament so we can learn from and learn about Him. Now the first principle that I see here is this. When we are oppressed as people or individuals, there is one thing to do. Retaliate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? There's, there's one thing to do. Have revenge. Plot when you go home. Think about the ways that you are going to get that person back. Get your whiteboards out, your markers, and just start calling your buddies over, your boyfriends, your girlfriends. And time to think this through. How are we going to attack the person as oppressing us? I uh, remember in college there was a person uh, that did not like our Christian club and they didn't like what we were doing. They just were someone that was not for us. Yet, unfortunately for us, they were in a place of higher power. And so, my first reaction is how are we going to get this woman fired? <laughs> we going to make sure that she has a poor job, whatever the, 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 the thing that you get every six months or evaluation. How do I make sure that that happens? And that is what most of us think. When someone is, is wronging us, when someone in power is against us, the first thing that we think is how can I retaliate? How can I get revenge? A lot of times it's a pride issue. Sometimes it's an anger, it's a, it's a heart issue. But what does God say? Hope that there's a better person in power next time. No, he doesn't say that either. <laughs> I'm just seeing if people are paying attention today. When it gets a little warm, people start falling asleep, lights off, you know what I'm saying? The Bible says to cry out to God. This is a constant theme in Scripture. This is the true one, by the way. <laughs> this principle is reinforced all throughout Scripture that when God's people are being oppressed, they don't take the matters into their own hands. They don't look at within themselves. They don't look to the systems of this world to bring clarity, to bring truth, to bring freedom. What they do is they cry out to God. Romans 12, 19 says this. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Ooh, that's way better than I can do. <laughs> See, God is the one who places leaders where they are. God is the one who judges nations for what they do. And God is the one who avenges the oppressed. You know, I remember specifically after this last election. We live in a blue state. Uh, and so after this last election, what was really interesting is the day after. The day after in New York, you're looking around where most people did not vote for the president that we have now in the city that we live, and there was a palpable depression right. in the city. Right. And people just, it, it really looked like 
Um, or what I realized from this that was really interesting is I never realized how many people put their hope in the president or in politics. And I remember it became really clear to me that day the deep depression that people were experiencing showed that they were putting their hope in politics. They put their hope in the system of this world to fix and right all the wrongs that were going on. But what God tells his people to do is he says there's only one place to put your hope. There's only one person that can avenge you and bring justice the way that justice should be done. Now, it may not be done in the timing that you have. It may not be done the way that you think it should be done. We see that in the story of Jonah, where God calls this man to go preach to a city that has oppressed his people and bring them salvation. What does God say to do? It says, make a habit of crying out to him. See, what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't allow our circumstances to cause depression. Rather, we should let our circumstances cause a greater prayer life. So often we are, our, our first reaction, our first thought is complaining, is whining, is depression, is hopelessness. Instead of our first reaction is getting on our knees, going home and crying out to our God. What would be different is instead of complaining about the situation that we're in, instead of doing that, we began to pray more about it. How would that change? See, God has made very clear throughout Scripture, if His people pray, if they call out to me, if they cry, then He will bring healing. He is the one who avenges. He is the one who brings us out of the places of oppression. He is the one that brings us out of the humiliating situations. He is the one that brings us out of the hard times. And what happens is we start looking to culture, we start looking within ourselves, we start looking to the higher ups to do these things, and what will happen every single time is those people will fail us. See, it happens every four years because every side thinks that the savior of Rome is coming. And then it's, it's like clockwork, 60 days, 90 days in, you realize every politician is a liar. Everything that they said they were going to do, they're not going to do. And then people start wondering, what is going on? There is only one person that we can put our hope in. And if you want to know if you are putting your hope in him, then ask yourself, what is your reaction to the sinfulness of this world, to oppression? What is your reaction to humiliation? If our reaction is not a greater prayer life, then our reaction is not godly. The second thing that we can learn from this is obedience leads to abundance. This is clear in Scripture. After Israel was able to prove that they had listened to God, then they could rightly call for the blessing of God on their people in verses 13 to 15. 
Many times we are constantly asking for God's blessing in our life without being willing to submit to God's will. I'm going to say that again. Many times we are constantly asking for God's blessing without being willing to submit to His will. God, why am I still dealing with this sin? It's a common question. Have you confessed it to your brother or sister so that you may be healed, as Scripture says? Have you prioritized being filled with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis so you can experience His fruit of self-control in your life? God, where is my peace? Where is my joy? Have you trusted Him and the decisions that He has led you towards? Or when God comes and He says, well, I want you to go this way or I want you to go that way, Do you check it against your own wisdom first? Do you check it against your checklist of what your life goals are? What your priorities are? Where you want to be? See, when we do that and things begin to go wrong, it should cause fear. It should cause a lack of peace in your life. And that's why I realized a long time ago, God, I'm going to stop making decisions for myself in my life. Because if my life is in my hands, I know there's one thing that is certainly true. I'm going to screw it up. If there is one definite truth about Justin Matera, it is that I make bad decisions for myself. Every decision that I decided for myself is led to become poor decision making in the future. And so when I begin to take things into my own hands, when I begin to take matters into my own hands, there's something that I'm very familiar with that comes with that. A lack of peace and a lack of joy. But when I say, God, this is your decision making and he, and he leads me somewhere, even if it's a hard situation, you know what I still have? Peace and joy. Because I know that this was not my decision And the one who knows all things and is in all places has caused me to walk this way. And even though it may not make sense for what I see and what I think, it is the right thing to do. And what that gives me is peace that surpasses human understanding and joy that cannot be robbed from me. Question that we ask, why do I never have enough? There's clear questions that scripture asks. Have you worked to get out of debt? Have you been faithful with what you have and budgeted your resources? Have you put God first in all your financial decisions? I love when it always gets quiet for these. It's like you can hear a pin drop. These are clear things. That scripture has called us to do time and time and time again. When we obey God, we begin to live a life of abundance, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of contentedness and of generosity. We cannot live an abundant life unless we first live an obedient life. See, if we are trying to live in the abundance of God and we feel like we are constantly gypped out of that, then I would then pose the question to you, are you living an obedient life? Because as we obey God, 
There are things that come with that. Every single time. And the last principle for today is this. Giving is the best medicine. Do you know the best way to fight the sin of American consumerism? Giving. Becoming generous. See, Heather and I were pretty fortunate to be very poor when we first got married. (laughs) And uh, usually people don't say that uh, when they say fortune has smiled on them, I was poor. But what it did was it taught us a great lesson. It taught us that we don't need as much money as we thought to live. You know, growing up, uh, the American thing to do is to go to college, you know, do well in high school, get into a good college, get a good degree, and then go find a good job. And there's certain things that come with that good job. And... um, There's expectations that everybody have. Well, I need to be making this amount. There's median incomes in the city. And, you know, in my field, this is what the average person makes. And so if this is the craft that I've worked at for four or five years and I want to get a job starting around this, and then hopefully in the next 10 years I can progress to this. And when we we look at culture and we say, well, this is what the average American does and this is what... This is what the average person in New York City does because we're a totally different animal than everybody else. And then we look at our life and we play this comparison game and we say, well, if I am not meeting the standards of my city or this culture, then there's something wrong. And what Heather and I realized really quickly in our poverty is that we had food and we had a roof over our head and we had clothes on our backs. And so what happened was uh, we realized something. That we can begin that after I wasn't as poor as I was anymore and uh, we began to see some financial increase in our life and we didn't have to live in a basement anymore and I didn't have to only go shopping once every two years. And I didn't have to wear the same sneakers every single day. Like, these were realities of some people's lives. It was reality of our life for a while. But when we started to get more money, when the salary began to increase, what God said to us, and what we realized is that we can start prioritizing, God, how do we plan our budget? How do we plan around how much we can give rather than how much we can make. And that totally changed our perspective because once we realized, well, we actually only need this to survive. If we only need this to cover our basic needs, then that means when we begin to make more, that means we can plan for starting to give rather than how much we want. See, the normal thing to do is, okay, once I make more, I can increase the size of my TV, I can increase the expense of my furniture, I can increase the size and the the extravagance of my vacation, I can get the new logo on my car, I can increase my purchases at the clothes shop. These are the normal things that we think about, but really, scripturally, Planning around generosity is godly. Planning around consumption leads to sin. See, Paul, he writes this letter. 
And the letter of Philippians, he writes to the Philippian church. And in this letter, it's basically a thank you letter. The Philippian church has been incredibly generous to him as he has gone around and he is planting churches all around the Mediterranean. And so he writes this letter to them. He's thanking them. And he ends the letter with this statement. And this is a statement I have held on to and I have always found to be true. In Philippians 4.19, it says this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's read that verse again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you. I have never been in need since we have started this life of giving. But I have been tested. There have been times where I, I would call my brother Chris. He's actually coming to preach in a few weeks. Really excited about that. He pastors a church in Astoria. Shameless plug. And me and Chris, he, he's my accountability partner. We talk almost every day. Uh, and in my, my business, there have been low, really low points in, in, the, in my business. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I was talking to Chris. And I was like, man... Chris, I really think it's, I think I'm going to have to close up shop. Uh, I, don't, I don't see what's happening. You know, we haven't, I haven't seen one deal landed to bring us extra income in the last six months. And it's killing us. You know, we're, we're about to go belly up. And so me and Chris, we pray and God speaks a clear word. Justin, don't worry. This is my business. This is not yours. I'm going to provide for it. You know, there's one thing is getting that word, and then the other thing is looking at your bank account when it's payroll time. <laughs> you ever get a word from God, and you just think, God, this did. Are you looking at the same situation that I'm looking at right now? More specifically, are you looking at the same bank account that I'm looking at right now? And I remember, you know, hearing that and just thinking, okay. This must be a time of testing. And so the test for me was not to start thinking in my own power, how am I going to get around this? You know, it's really easy for me to do. I need to start trying harder. I'm going to start making more calls. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing that. Going to more meetings. I need to make this happen. Instead, it was me sitting down, resting in God and saying, God, you said you're going to provide. So I'm going to let you provide. See, we talked about this last week. God loves to show off in your life. And so when I start taking matters into my own hands, I'm robbing him of the ability to show off in my life. I'm saying, God, no, actually, I have the strength. I have the power. I have the wherewithal. I have the wisdom to get this done. Even though you said you're going to get it done, guess what? I can get it done better. And so my test in that season for the next few months was to believe And be obedient to what God had told me, which was calm down and watch and see. What was funny is at the, a few months later, God says, God brings this guy into my life. He says, Justin, I want you to do everything that your business does. Do it for free for this guy. Now I have a policy about that. I don't do things for free. 
The reason why I don't do things for free is because people take advantage when you start giving them things for free. If you realize anytime you have tickets or you tell people to come somewhere and everything is free, no one shows up. But when people pay even $5 for something, everybody is going to be there because they paid for it. And so God said, do this thing for free. And I'm like, okay. Next step. Have no money, about to go bankrupt, but giving out free work right now. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, God. Really appreciate this. Couple months later, right? So I got this word, and then six months later, I'm still not seeing anything. There's been drips and drabs keeping us basically alive, wondering if it was worth it. I wasn't making anything. That led us into the most prosperous season that we have had in my business. So there has been testing. If you think obedience just means the easy life, then you also haven't read scripture either. You know, sometimes people promise people, oh, when you get saved, everything is going to be good. And I'm like, yo, son, when you get saved, everything gets worse for a while. <laughs> like, that's when, like, all of a sudden, Satan's like, hmm. I, I got a new prospect over here. I'm going to start messing with this person. Let me get that job. Let me get those relationships. Let me get all of these things stirring all of a sudden. And then we start to realize, man, that's a sin? That's a sin? That's a sin? What is going on in that? Things ain't getting better right now. But scripture says when you have built your life on the rock and you have the right foundation, what happens? The storms will come, the wind will come, the rain will come, the flood will come, and your house will still be standing. Come on, somebody. Being obedient to God doesn't mean that you may have the best life that you can show off on Instagram and all of your stories. But what it will mean is abundance of life in him that you will never thirst again. It will mean joy. It will mean peace. It will mean being content in the craziest of situations where your livelihood may be at stake. And it may be another week before it is all gone, but resting in the word of God saying, I will provide for you. See, when we look at the story of Israel, it's really easy to characterize it and say, man, this is a great fable. This is a great history lesson. This is this is a, just a really intriguing or interesting but I pray for us that as we wind this down, it becomes a guide in our lives. Of saying, look at what Israel has done. God, you have been faithful to them. You have brought them out of things. You have done things in them that no other people can say. Even in their faithlessness, you were there and you constantly gave to them. But they didn't believe. They didn't obey. They kept straying away. I mean, reading the story of Israel is one of the most painful stories you can ever read. I mean, it is literally hundreds of years of God just trying. <laughs> Saying, come on, guys. You can do this. My mercy is still here. 
My grace for you is still here. My promises are still here. They are yes and amen. I pray that we learn from the people that we learn this about God. You can rest your hat on this at the end of the day, that he is faithful. That if you obey what God has called you to do, if you you follow what he has said to you, even though if it doesn't make sense in the natural, even though if it it doesn't look right, if it doesn't, it doesn't, it's against everything that you are used to and normal, I can tell you this, that he is faithful to his people and he will never leave you in need. He will never leave you hanging. There's one thing about God that has been reinforced time and time again and it becomes oh, more it becomes easier to be obedient to him. Because I can say God, I remember this time where even even I, I was disobedient to you and you would send me back and then gave me the thing that you said you were going to do. God, I remember this time that it didn't look right. I wanted to say you were crazy. In fact, I did say you were crazy, but I obeyed and look at what you did. I'm telling you, there were times, even in my business where, I mean, this wasn't the only time that God tested me. I just said, it's not happening. But out of nowhere, somebody would call and say, hey, we talked three years ago. And I remember this. And I, had, I couldn't do it back then, but I'm ready to work with you now. Here's my budget. No one ever says, here's my budget. But they would say, here's my budget. This is what I, I can give you. And there's so many times I would tell some of the employees and I would just get on my knees after that and say, God, you, why did I doubt you? Why did I put my trust in something else? I'm sorry. God, I love you. Help me. Help my doubt, Father. That next time when you speak into my life, next time when I read something in your word and it says do this, Father, help my doubt that I would trust you, that that all my needs will be provided for, that I am building my life on the solid rock, on the foundation that cannot be broken. God, help my doubt. That even in my oppression right now, if it's, if it's something that's saying, God, I want to take this into my own hands, that, Father, I would trust you. That my reaction to the world would no, no longer be, what can I do? But it would be, Father, I just, I need to pray. I need to be with you today. That God would train our reliance on him to become deeper rather than our self-sufficiency to become better. Father, I pray that we would learn from your people, Israel, to cry out to you, to be obedient to what you've called us to do, and to put you first in all of our resources. Lord, let us be that type of people. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now to shape our hearts, to renew our minds, There are things that we have been holding back in our life. There are some of us that have very specific things that God has called you to do that you have been 
wishy-washy on saying, I I don't know about that. God is calling you right now. Be obedient to him and watch how he is faithful to you. There's decisions that we need to make today that say, God, I'm trusting you. I'm no longer going to doubt you. I'm no longer going to think you're faithless. I'm no longer going to say I can do it in my own. But I believe that you can do this. I believe in what you're saying. Come on, why don't we stand up right now? Father, let us be a people that when you say something, we believe it. That obedience would be our go-to. That getting on our knees and praying before you would be our go-to. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. Transform our hearts and our minds. Renew us that we would have a new spirit within us. One that longs to follow you. As the worship team comes, I invite you to pray those prayers right now and allow God to do his work.